Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our Advent series, Jesus Our Exemplar. Today looking at Jesus, our exemplar of bringing love to relationships. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. We've got a lot to cover this morning, so we'd better get started. As this morning, we continue on with our Advent series, with today's message being titled, Jesus Our Exemplar, Bringing Love to Relationships. I had to look up exactly what this word exemplar means when I started preparing for uh, for this message. And last week, Phil explained his choosing of this word. And just to recap it, the word exemplar simply means someone who's a perfect example or someone who is an excellent model for something. So this morning, we're going to take some time to study how Jesus is our excellent example of bringing love to relationships. To help us in this quest, I've chosen for our main text this morning a portion of 1 John chapter 4 and about half of 2 John. Now, I find it hard to separate the three persons of the Trinity in this discussion on bringing love to relationships. So I'm going to be referring quite a bit to God the Father, as well as God the Son, and to a lesser extent, God the Holy Spirit. A few interesting facts that I found about the word love to get us going this morning. The word love and its derivatives, that is loves, lovely, loved, etc., is used 797 times in the Bible. And the word love can be found in 59 of the 66 books of the Bible. Now, interestingly, and I put no weight on this in any one direction, but the word love is not found in the book of Acts. But I think it's safe to say that there are many examples of love in the book of Acts, which just goes to show that you don't have to name love for it to be present. I do think, though, that we need to take a few minutes to focus in on the word love and examine what kind of love we'll be looking at this morning. Now, the word love is used in different ways in the Bible, just as we have different uses for the word love in the English language. Today, I can say I love pizza, I love my wife, I love my best friend, I love my siblings, I love the body of Christ. And each one of these words has its own nuances within the context. The way I love pizza is not the same way I love the body of Christ, And the way that I love my siblings is not the same way that I love my wife. Now, the Greek language also has different nuances for the word love, but fortunately the Greeks also had different words for these nuances, which makes it a lot easier to study. Today we're going to be concentrating on the type of love that's referred to as agape love. And most, if not all of you, have heard this word used before, agape. Biblical agape love is used to speak of God's love that he has for the world, that Christians are supposed to emulate, that we're called to emulate. It's the selfless, sacrificial love that Christians are called to display that Christ showed to us by obeying the will of his Father who loved us so much that the sacrifice of his one and only Son was not too great a price, not too great a price to pay that we might inherit eternal salvation. This love that God has shown mankind comes without conditions attached, that is, There's nothing that you have to do, nor is there anything that you can do to receive it or to merit it. 
Outside of the New Testament, the Greek word agape can have a variety of contexts. But in the vast majority of instances within the New Testament, it carries a distinct meaning. In the New Testament, agape is almost always used to describe the love that is of and from God, whose very nature is love itself. God is love, as pointed out in 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to take a look at that in a little bit more detail. God does not merely love, he is love itself. Everything God does flows from his love. Agape is also used to describe what our love for God should look like, as pointed out in Luke 10.27. Or a servant's faithful respect to his master, as shown in Matthew 6.24. Or a man's attachment to things, as noted in John 3.19. God loves the unlovable and the unlovely, not because we deserve to be loved or because of any excellence that we possess, but because it is his nature to love, and he must be true to his nature. Agape love is always shown by what it does. God's love is displayed most clearly at the cross, as noted in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where it reads, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. We do not deserve such a sacrifice on our behalf, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's agape love is unmerited, it's gracious, and it's constantly seeking the benefit of the ones that he loves. Though we are undeserving recipients of God's love, he lavishes this agape love upon us. And we are to love others, with the same agape love, whether the ones we love are fellow believers, as in John 13:34, or bitter enemies, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 5:44. Jesus gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan as an example of sacrifice for the sake of others, even for those who may care nothing at all for us. Agape love as modeled by Christ is not based on a feeling. Rather, it's a determined act of the will a joyful resolve to put the welfare of others above yourself. That's an awfully long-winded definition of one word, love, that Christ is our great example that we are supposed to emulate. But I felt it's important for us to understand how deep and how broad the love of God is for us if we are to set out loving each other also in the same way as well as the world around us. Well, let's start into our text this morning. First John chapter 4 Verses 7 to 21. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us so, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and he in us, and we in him. And God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Sorry, We know that we live in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. 
And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. <clears throat> These three epistles or letters found towards the end of the Bible, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, were written by the Apostle John. He was with Christ, taught by Christ, witnessed to Jesus' ministry, and he was a participant within that ministry. Some have given John the uh, Apostle's title of Apostle of Love. And it's certainly fitting here as John's love and concern for the body of Christ is quite evident throughout these letters. The word agape is used 27 times within these 15 verses. John instructs those he calls dear friends to love one another. Why? Because love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now I want to make it perfectly clear here. John is addressing fellow Christians or believers in Christ Jesus. Those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ would not be included in John's instructions. In fact, most if not all of the instructions in these New Testament epistles or letters were directed towards Christians. He's saying if you claim to know God and claim to be known by God, you'd better have this agape love within you. As taught elsewhere in the Bible, your love had better extend even to those whom you find hard to love. In fact, it had better extend to those who speak ill of you, who reject you, who persecute you, who wish you harm. Because that's exactly what God does to those whom he created that we call mankind. He loves us with this agape love. This love that John is encouraging his readers to show is a product of God's spirit living in the believer. I don't believe it's something that we can produce on our own. Oh, people can have and show love towards each other. Jesus recognized that in Matthew 5.46. And even atheists are capable of and do show love. But remember the love that we are studying today is that selfless, sacrificial love that Christians are called to display that Christ showed to us by obeying the will of his Father who loved us so much that the sacrifice of his only Son was not too great a price to pay that we might inherit eternal salvation. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God's Holy Spirit not only comes to counsel and encourage you, but he takes up residence within you. For some, this may sound like an objectionable intrusion, but it's anything but that. It's not akin to some science fiction movie like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Think of it as like being on a journey, and along with you is the greatest ally you can ever ask for, who not only journeys with you, but he becomes a part of you. That's the connection the Holy Spirit makes with the child of God. John goes on to say that he has seen and can testify as an eyewitness that God did indeed set his only son to be the savior of the world. This is what the Christmas season is all about. This is why we can be here today talking about God's agape love in our lives. 
as wonderful as it is to give and receive presents at Christmas, that's not what John is talking about here. As wonderful as it is to spend time with family at Christmas, and believe me, you don't know how special that is until it's not there. But that's not what John was talking about here. The very first example of Jesus showing and being that exemplar of God's agape love to us happened in Bethlehem. The human species is unique amongst all of God's creation. Why? Because God became one of them. Because he became one of us. It certainly wasn't a step up the corporate ladder when Jesus left his glory in heaven to come and dwell amongst us as one of us. But because of God's love for his creation, Jesus came. John also states that God is love and that we can love because he first loved us. That we can exhibit agape love at all stems from the fact that Jesus first loved us. Unfortunately, some have made this attribute of love to be the only attribute of God and have forgotten some of the other attributes of God that are taught in the Bible. For some, God has become only a God of love. And what I mean by that, for them, God is a wishy-washy God. For them, everyone gets a participant's trophy just for living, and everyone except the most heinous will go to heaven. But God is anything but a wishy-washy God. God is righteous, and in his righteousness he has judged the world and found it lacking and guilty. In his judgment he has sentenced the world, and all that is left is for that sentence to be carried out. But because God loved the world, Jesus came, sent by his Father with a gift of salvation, that those who receive it and open it and treasure it, then they have the right to be called a child of God. Try and top that for a Christmas present. You're not going to find it at Walmart. In verse 15, when John states, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. I wonder if he was thinking back to the time when he was part of the group of 12 disciples, when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And one of John's fellow disciples, Peter, answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But John is not implying here that simply acknowledging or believing, as it's stated elsewhere in the New Testament, that Jesus is God's Son actually makes you a child of God. Simply acknowledging or believing in the existence of Jesus as God's Son does not make you part of God's family. The words acknowledge or believe require a deeper meaning here, a deeper definition. In the context of the use here, acknowledge or believe means to put one's complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, to acknowledge that Christ is your Savior. Doing so creates an environment for God to live in you and you and God and makes it possible to show this agape love to others. John goes on to state, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. If we are to live in harmony with God's family as one of his children, we too had better possess the same attribute of agape. A wonderful description of this agape love that we need to embody in our lives is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, often referred to as the love chapter. Now getting back to the title of our message this morning, Jesus our exemplar, bringing love to relationships. How did Jesus exemplify these attributes of love as found in 1 Corinthians 13, which in part reads, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. How did Jesus live in love while he was on this earth and set for us the example of what John is calling his listeners to do, that is, live in love? My answer to that is not as long as my definition of agape love. My answer to that can be found in one word, servanthood. Jesus showed his servant's heart to his disciples in the most humble of gestures by washing his disciples' feet. All throughout his time on earth, Jesus' actions exemplify this description of love. He didn't just tell those around them what they need to do, he lived it. In doing so, he not only became our example, but he set a standard for us to strive for. It's a standard none of us can ever really reach that is in perfection because we are not Christ and God has not called us to perfection. Even though we are made perfect in God's eyes when we choose Christ over the world. But I do believe God has called us to servanthood. That doesn't mean that we can use our imperfection as an excuse for those times that we fail to love those around us. We fail all the time to live up to the standard that God sets for us. But being imperfect is not a license not to love those whom we find hard to love. Jesus went against the social norm when he loved those around him. He conversed with the Samaritan woman, a sworn enemy of the Jews. He reached out and touched the leper, healing him. He had patience with his disciples when a lot of us would have traded them in. He loved the children around him with deep affection. He wept over Jerusalem, knowing that the city was about to reject him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing as he hung upon the cross. How many of us would show that kind of love to others at that moment? There is no greater example of servanthood than Jesus obeying the will of his Father all the way to the cross. There is no greater of love for humanity than the reason why Jesus went to the cross. There is no perfect Christian on this earth, but we are made perfect in God's eyes because of the perfect Lamb of God who was crucified as an atonement, as punishment for our sins. If you take away anything from my message this morning, then take away this. If you do not have a servant's heart, you will find it difficult, if not impossible, to express agape to those around you and in this world. But now we come to a couple of verses in which John speaks about perfect love. But Jim, you say, you just finished telling us there are no perfect Christians, so how can there be perfect love among us? Good question. I'm glad you asked it. Towards the end of John chapter 4, John states, In this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now this perfect love that John refers to does not imply that we are perfect in our love towards each other. Rather, John is about to switch the focus of agape love from the horizontal that is Christian loving Christians to the vertical that is Christians loving God as a result of God loving us. Though we may not be perfect in how we exhibit love towards others, John is introducing us to the reality that God's love is made perfect in us because we love him. 
because of the love God has for us that comes from the repentant heart, we as Christians are able to have confidence that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ as described in 1 Corinthians 5, we will have the confidence that if we live in love, we will be approved by Christ. Now this judgment is not about someone being denied eternal eternal, um, entry into heaven. That question is settled when the repentant heart accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior. Salvation is secure and not in question here. This judgment that takes place before Christ by the Christian is more of an account of how they lived their life as a Christian. John is indicating that there should be no fear of punishment in the Christian's heart who emulates God's perfect agape love. The one who fears punishment before the judgment seat of Christ needs to search their heart to see if God's love is lacking within them. Now, not all fear is bad. I feared disobeying my earthly father when I was a younger person, not because I was afraid of him, but because of the guilt that I felt from disappointing him. Or when I get on an airplane, I want to know that the flight crew is scared to death of flying into an active thunderstorm because of of how dangerous that can be. John was expressing that if God's love is in the Christian and the Christian in God's love, then there will be no fear of punishment when going before the judgment seat of Christ. John brings us home in the last few verses of this chapter. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. These last few verses in 1 John chapter 4 are similar to an event that John would have been witness to shortly after the resurrection of Christ. You remember the story of Thomas being gathered with the other disciples and Thomas stating that unless he sees Christ and sees the wounds of the crucifixion upon him, that he will not believe that Christ is alive. After Jesus appeared to them and cast out all doubt of his resurrection, do you remember what Jesus said? John chapter 20, verse 29 reads, Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. These verses are similar, not in context, not in story, but they're similar in the unseen. In the story of Doubting Thomas, Christ gave a blessing to those who have not seen, but yet believe. And here John's instruction to the Christian on love John addresses the reality of not being able to love the one who is unseen unless they love those around them who they can see. I want to close off our time this morning by looking at a comparison between love and truth and how the two must work hand in hand. John continues his teaching on love in a more subtle way in his letter that we title 2 John. 2 John is described by some as the postcard epistle or letter in the Bible. It's only 13 verses in length. Well, let's read the first six verses of 2 John. The elder, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in in the truth, and not only I, but also those who know the truth, because the truth which lives in us will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. 
And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. It's interesting that John introduces himself in this letter simply as the elder. There's some debate as to the exact date of when this letter was written, but it's quite possible that John was one of the last remaining original apostles. Or, when he wrote this letter, he was simply the only elder, or one of the few elders, that the recipient of this letter would have known. Now, there is no implication in John's introduction that he was being arrogant or elevating himself by saying, the elder. This is the elder writing to you. No, this is John just simply stating, this is the elder writing you a letter. Now, there's also some debate as to whom the letter was written to. Some believe that the introduction to the chosen lady and her children was a coded greeting to a particular church and the Christians within that church. Others interpret the greeting as an actual person and her family that this letter was written to. There are strengths and weaknesses to both, and for the sake of time, I won't go into that. Rather, I want us to focus in on the message itself which John sends, which is appropriate regardless of how you interpret this introduction. Within the first half of this letter, John intertwines the thought of God's love and God's truth. Now, my message on Jesus being the exemplar, bringing love to relationships, would not be complete if we do not look at God's love displayed within his truth. We can cast a very wide bullseye in the discussion of merging God's truth and love. And sadly, that can lead to anything but a display of love towards each other when debating some of these interpretations on the broader outer rings of that bullseye circle. This has happened over and over again in the history of Christianity by men much more learned than I am myself. What I want us to look at this morning is the very core of our Christian faith, And that our exemplar himself, Jesus Christ, brought to us. And that is our relationship with him. It can be said that there are two main types of people in the Christian community. One group are the love people, and the other group are the truth people. Love people like to think of things like unity, acceptance, and harmony between believers as things most important. They look for ways for people on opposite sides of the fence to find their way through and to understand and to accept each other. They want to make sure everybody gets heard. They remind us that the cross is an expression of God's love and that God himself is love. But love people can have weaknesses they may not necessarily understand. They can lack discernment. They may fail to protect the church from evil forces. They may fail to understand the need at times to draw a line in the sand. They may tolerate false teaching because they don't want to confront it. If these weaknesses play out in their lives, then their faith can become watered down. The other group, truth people, they care deeply about the salvation of the lost, and they remind us that unless truth is declared, no one can be saved. They remind us as well that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. They point out that faith must be defended. They will talk about discernment. They can teach you how to study the Bible. But truth people can also have weaknesses that they don't realize. They can become harsh, judgmental, and lack grace. They can become so dogmatic in their interpretation of truth that they sow disunity. They can sometimes destroy the church if they don't care about people, but rather care more about concepts. But here's the good news. You don't have to choose between being a person of truth and being a person of love. It should never be a trade-off. 
we should think that growing in both truth and love is part of Christian discipleship. Second John is the letter of both love and truth. The question here is, can both of these be held in the same person at the same time? I believe it can. And I would go so far as to say that it is imperative that it does. John points that out in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. John is playing both sides of the love and truth coin. On the one hand, he's saying that in order to love, we must walk in obedience to his commands or truth. This word commands is plural. That is, we must be in obedience to all of God's commands or truth. That includes everything Christ, our exemplar, requires of us as well. And on the other hand, his command or truth is that you walk in love. This walking in love not only extends to the relationship on the vertical with God, but as John directs, it includes our relationship on the horizontal with each other. So John is saying that in order to walk in love, we must walk in obedience to his commands or truth, and his commands or truth is that you walk in love. But how can our love for each other be measured by our obedience to God's commands? The answer is that God's commands define love itself. Following God's commandments can also be defined as following God's will for our life. Perhaps the greatest example that we have of following God's will is Jesus Christ going to the cross for us. Jesus set aside his own will for the will of his Father. As part of the Trinity, I don't know if I'll ever completely understand how that worked between God the Father and God the Son, but I believe it's true. No greater example of Jesus bringing love to relationships can be found than displayed on the cross for us. We could do nothing to earn God's grace, and we could never deserve it. But because of Jesus' love for his Father and his love for us, we can be the recipients of the greatest gift ever offered to humanity, the gift of salvation. Something I want to remind us of in closing is that though we can never be worthy of such a selfless gift as that offered by Christ our exemplar, though we can never be worthy of it, God counts us all worthy of his love. God loves us in our most vilest of sinful state. So much so that he sent his only son into the world to show the way to eternal salvation. Don't think for a moment that you have to get your act together before you can share in God's love. Don't ever think that you're a mistake or that God made a mistake with you. In the words of David Ring, an itinerant preacher, a man born with cerebral palsy, a man who walks with a limp and preaches with a speech impediment. <clears throat> In the words of David Ring, God never says, oops. God never said, oops, when he watched you form in your mother's womb. And he never said, oops, with regards to his plan that he has for each and every one of us. We say, oops, all the time. In fact, I think my parents said, oops, when I was born. Yeah, I was the last of five children, and my parents were in their mid-40s when I was born. I don't think I was playing. I can just imagine my mother coming up to my dad when she realized she was pregnant with me and saying, oops. You would think that after having four siblings before me, they would have figured out how children are made. But apparently not so. It took until after I was born before they figured it out. And I'm glad they had to wait until I was born. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here this morning sharing with you Jesus, our exemplar, bringing love to relationships, and reminding us all that we are never an oops in God's eyes. I'll ask Trevor if he can close us off in prayer.
Dear Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the day you have made. Lord, we thank you that um, you came down, as Jim said, that the, the truth, the life, came down to earth to save a sinful people, to show us the way. Lord, may we just get everything in balance, in not too hard on one way, too soft on the other. But Lord, we, we read your scriptures and we know that we, you want balance, you want truth, you want love, you want the whole package from your believers. And Lord, help us all to do that and help us to go deeper and deeper every day to just represent you on this earth as uh, that we are your people and that the, the lost can see you in us and that they want to see you and find you for themselves. And Lord, we just thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you that you did send your son. And we pray, Lord, that our lives show our gratefulness. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.